So <clears throat> last week we studied the fear of God. <clears throat> that was a topic that came up as really fundamental to the books of wisdom when we were going through those. And ultimately it's fundamental to the whole Bible beginning to end. Uh, but we were going, we went from looking at the Kings of Israel in the books of Kings and Chronicles. Eventually we ended up with Solomon, which led us to the wisdom books, which led us to the fear of God. So we kind of went off on this side path. That's a great rabbit trail though. I mean, it's awesome. Uh, I think I enjoyed it anyway. So, uh, but today we're going to backtrack a little bit, right? So today we're going to, uh, go back to where we left off before going down that path and return to the main road, so to speak, and resume our journey through the main narrative of the Old Testament. And at this point, we're getting ready uh, to really enter the, the final major time period of the Old Testament history of Israel. Uh, we refer to this as the exile, and it's a critical landmark uh, period because it's, it's a huge shift in the nation and in the nation's relationship uh, with God. Um, so before we get into that, the word exile should not be confused with the word exodus, which describes Israel's escape from Egypt. They're two totally separate concepts and events, though they're somewhat related. Uh, but I guess everything in the Bible is somewhat related, so I don't know how you even, yeah. <laughs> so uh, exodus is an escape from Egypt. Exile is getting kicked out of home or uh, being removed from the place that they belong. And so where an exodus is taking them and extracting them from a place that they didn't belong to take them to the place that they did belong, the exile is taking them from where they belonged and removing them from that. So the two different concepts. Uh, but this idea of, of exile, can anyone think of any exiles in the Old Testament prior to Solomon's reign? Uh, if you can, pop them into the chat, the group chat. So exiles in the Old Testament prior to Solomon's reign. Anybody have any? Ha. Bingo. Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. The original exile. Very true. Very true. Any others? I guess you could. Oh, let's see what we got. Cain was exiled. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, Jacob. Hagar. You could definitely call Hagar's banishment an exile. Banishment is kind of a, a synonym. Could go to the Tower of Babel, probably even, um, <laughs> where like they were scattered and removed, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think Moses, well, he kind of fled, but that was when he had to leave Egypt, that was a, a sort of an exile because he, he fled because of the consequences that would happen if he stayed. Yeah. But actually, I mean, we, we actually say he was banished too. I don't know. Somebody want to look that one up and then correct <laughs> David or, or confirm David's uh, question there? Uh, the, the word exile can be used to refer to, I guess, a lot of different events, uh, like the Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the garden, I think would be the first one. And then we have other ones that carry through. But from a historical standpoint, um, Israel's definitive exilic period or exile period occurred after the kings that we talked about 
couple of weeks ago, all the evil kings of Judah and Israel and the, the good kings, bad kings, and, and that whole split kingdom and everything. It's after that, the books of Kings and Chronicles, around uh, 597, 600 to 597 BC is this period that's referred to as the exilic period or the exile period. Yeah, and there was a lot of literature that was produced during this time, you know, leading up to it and during and after it. So kind of covering around 200 years-ish total. Um, and a, a large portion of our scripture was produced during that time. But there's also a lot of non-scriptural commentary and narratives that aren't in our Bible in the canon. Um, but a lot of writing happened. And these writings shed a lot of light on what Israel went through, how God was working, what he was teaching them. It also makes it very clear what Israel's hopes and their dreams were for the future, uh, figuratively, and there's literal dreams in there too. Um, but we have various different prophets and other just notable figures and, and stories that show up, again, leading up to during and after the exile. We have people like Jeremiah and Elijah and Elisha. Those were kind of leading up to it, but warning about it. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, those guys show up during it. Uh, you have Esther and Ezra, Nehemiah. They were kind of towards the tail end of it. Isaiah. So this is just a really formative time period for Israel. Like, like Mike said, it's full of these big names too. And we're going to explore hopefully some of these people and their stories and you know where they fit into the overall timeline in the coming weeks but since there's a common factor in all of these stories in is this concept of exile so today we're just going to focus in on just how israel ended up right in the middle of, of total exile so to start with um let's look at what what happened after Israel and Judah's kings went really from bad to worse. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Remember, uh, the, the nation of Israel was originally 12 tribes, but at this point, they're no longer united. It was split into these two separate kingdoms, north and south, Israel and Judah. Essentially, there's 10 tribes in Israel, two in, the, in Judah. And so, yeah, a few weeks ago, we saw how all these different kings of, of each in each kingdom, they were listed out in, in the book of Kings and categorized as either good or bad. And the vast majority were just bad. And when we get to chapter 17 of second Kings, we're going to skip around a lot. Maybe we can, uh, maybe Mike can get this passage pasted in. Um, but we're going to spend most of our time in second Kings. We find out that Israel <laughs> kind of drops out of the picture pretty early on. Chapter 17 is kind of in the middle of, of second Kings. So we're going to start in verse 6 of 2 Kings 17. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. He deported the Israelites to Assyria and settled them in Halah along the harbor, Gozen's River, and in the cities of the Medes. This disaster happened because the people of Israel sinned against Yahweh their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and because they worshipped other gods. And they, it goes into a lot more detail about how they sinned and, and some of the details of how they were exiled. And then we, if we jump down to uh, verse 21, uh, we, there's some significant statements here. Uh, when Yahweh tore Israel from the house of David, 
Israel made Jeroboam son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam led Israel away from following Yahweh and caused them to commit immense sin. The Israelites persisted in all the sins that Jeroboam committed and did not turn away from them. Finally, Yahweh removed Israel from his presence, just as he had declared through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel has been exiled to Assyria from their homeland to this very day. It's kind of a, a summary of what happened. And remember, Israel is now referring to specifically uh, those 10 tribes. Judah is still separate. And as far as the, the different kings go in the book of Kings, it's going to still list a few more, but it's going to focus mainly on, on Judah. And remember, Judah is also where Jerusalem is. So that's where Yahweh's temple is. And it becomes a lot more important. Maybe there's a little bit of hope here that, that Judah can be redeemed. And they do, they hold out a little bit longer than Israel, but we'll see they do eventually lose control over time. Uh, we get to a good king in Judah named Josiah, and he actually did get the people to turn back to God for a time. Um, he, he did a lot of great things, really cool story. But in chapter 23, he's just killed, and it's kind of anticlimactic. He's killed by Pharaoh Necho, the king of Egypt. And in a way, that is the beginning of the end here, because Egypt then is basically, they, can, they are able to strong arm some control over Judah, and they, they are controlling who's on the throne, all of whom, by the way, were evil, <laughs> um, evil in Yahweh's sight. And Egypt is taxing the people really heavily. So technically, they still do have a king and a kingdom. But in reality, this is starting to feel more like they're downgraded all the way, you know, they're going back to the way things were before they were rescued from Egypt, brought to, into their home um, in this land that was promised to Abraham so long ago. Oh, how did Mike get muted? You're unmuting me? Stop playing with my mute button, David. When you get to the... Uh... <laughs> At the at chapter 23 ends with um, kind of like a boilerplate description of Jehoiakim. Um, Jehoiakim was the, the king at that time. And, and it's similar to that of all the, the bad kings preceding him, which was most of them, and a few that came after him. And so maybe David can paste up there, 2 Kings 23, 36 and 37. It says Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebedah, daughter of Padiah. She was from Rumah. What uh, he did what was evil in Yahweh's sight, just as his ancestors had done. It's that, that phrase in verse 37, he did what was evil in Yahweh's sight, just as his ancestors had done it. That idea of doing what was evil in Yahweh's sight is, is something that you just keep hearing over and over and over about these kings. Um, in chapter 24, it gets even worse. Um, and, and we'll read in chapter 24, verses 1 through 7. During Jehoiakim's reign, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon attacked. Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. And then he turned and rebelled against him. Yahweh sent Chaldean, Aramean, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against Jehoiakim. 
He sent them against Judah to destroy it. According to the word of Yahweh, he had spoken through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, this happened to Judah at Yahweh's command to remove them from his presence. It was because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all he had done, and also because of the innocent blood he had shed. He had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and Yahweh was not willing to forgive. The rest of the events of Jehoiakim's reign, along with all of his accomplishments, are written in the historical record of Judah's kings. Jehoiakim rested with his fathers, and his son Jehoiachin became king in his place. Now the king of Egypt did not march out of his land again, for the king of Babylon took everything that had belonged to the king of Egypt, from the brook of Egypt to the Euphrates River. So now even the Egypt has no use for Judah. because They've been totally ransacked. Um, but the statement in verse four is, is really one of those ones that I think we wrestle with a little bit. It says Yahweh was not willing to forgive. And, and I don't know about you guys, but when I read a passage like that, it's, I mean, that's just stark. It's, it's just this, this black, bleak, dark picture. Um, and it just kind of seems to go against the very nature of God. I mean, that Yahweh refused. He was not willing to forgive them. Um, I, I think we're going to have to come back to that one, David. I, I think we've we got to keep going here. But I think we have to come back to that. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't God a forgiving God? Yeah. It's, for now, let's skip down to verse 10, still in uh, chapter 24 of 2 Kings, uh, starting in verse 10. At that time, the servants of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon marched up to Jerusalem, and the city came under siege. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to the city while his servants were besieging it. King Jehoiakim of Judah, along with his mother, his servants, his commanders, and his officials, surrendered to the king of Babylon. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. He also carried off from there all the treasures of Yahweh's temple and the treasures of the king's palace, and he cut into pieces all the gold articles that King Solomon of Israel had made for Yahweh's sanctuary, just as Yahweh had predicted. He deported all Jerusalem and all the commanders and all the best soldiers, 10,000 captives, including all the craftsmen and metalsmiths. Except for the poorest people of the land, no one remained. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar deported Jehoiakim to Babylon. He took the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the leading men of the land into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Then uh, the king of Babylon brought captive into Babylon all 7,000 of the best soldiers and 1,000 craftsmen and metalsmiths, all strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Metaniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, daughter of Jeremiah, and she was from Libna. Zedekiah did what was evil in Yahweh's sight, just as Jehoiakim had done. Because of Yahweh's anger, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he finally banished them from his presence. And then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now, first of all, notice that uh, phrase, just as Yahweh had predicted in verse 13. That's 
it's an interesting uh, phrase and that's an interesting topic to trace. If you want to go and look at how many times you see that, especially since uh, the giving of the Mosaic laws and the, the Mosaic covenant, um, how many times it's like a little, I told you so in there. So how many times did it happen just as I, just as Yahweh predicted. <laughs> uh, but there's, there's a couple other major things to notice here. First of all, just this mass deportation that's being described. Uh, it's, this is really the culmination of the exile at this point. It's not just about losing control of the kingdom. They're not even in the kingdom anymore. They're physically banished, kicked out, and that's, that's the epitome of exile. And all the strongest, the brightest, the best, all the, the lifeblood of Jerusalem and Judah, they're forced to leave their homes and go to this foreign, unfamiliar land to be ruled and subjugated by this foreign king. I think it's kind of uh, interesting to note that they left the poorest ones behind. I mean, that's kind of like, I don't, the fact that that fact is even left in there to me, I just find really intriguing. It's like they took all the best. The mm -hmm. best soldiers, the best metalsmiths, the most skilled people, and they just left the poorest ones to to yeah. do whatever they need to do because I guess they weren't a threat or they weren't useful or something. Yeah, they were there. So there was a remnant there, but they wouldn't have been able to function very well as as a society without the people needed to, you know, the literal strength and <laughs> leadership. Yeah, yeah. I think the second thing that really stands out in this passage is in verse twenty. And it, the statement that it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he finally banished them from his presence. Um, it's like the ultimate statement of finality when it comes to God's judgment. And it echoes the almost identical statement that was made about Israel back in chapter 17, verse 23. And when you think about it, the God's presence is the greatest gift and the greatest blessing. And it's at the core of God's promise to Abraham and to Moses and to David. It was what we lost in Eden and was restored to a sense in Jerusalem with the temple, but now has been totally ripped away, um, ushering in a very dark period in Israel's um, history. And I think to, to me, one of the things that I, I think is significant is that phrase. You remember um, when Solomon dedicated the temple, he prayed to God that God would look on, on Jerusalem with favor and on his temple with favor and remember the prayers that come up from there and remember that place. And God said, I will, and I will dwell here and I will be here and I will hear your prayers when my people abandon me and call out to me and they turn toward Jerusalem and they pray, I'll hear their prayers. That, that was a very prophetic statement that God was making back then during the de temple dedication. But God said, I will live here among my people. God doesn't leave the people at this point because he promised to stay there. He banishes the people from his presence and he kicks them out. And, and I think that, that to me, that was just a significant thing. That's kind of like, wow. And now they're, they're totally gone. Um, they're just like totally isolated from God and taken to foreign countries away from their cities, away from their families, away from their land that they were promised, away from the temple. Um, and the book of Lamentations, so to give you a perspective of some of the other uh, Bible books here, and we're going to look at some more of how uh, all of the exilic uh, period writings, the, the pre-exile prophets and the books during exile, the books after, we're going to look at those uh, in, the, in the months to come. But Lamentations was written during the exile. 
And if you really want a sobering reflection on how painful and tragic this time was for the Jews, just read through Lamentations. You, you'll kind of get a, an idea of the heart um, of just the, the, the despair, I guess, the utter despair that they have. Um, they're, they're super homesick at, at the point of Lamentations. And I'm sure quite a few of us in the, have, have experienced homesickness before. Um, now, 2 Kings 24.20 ended with the statement that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And uh, we're not going to read through all the details of what happened, but uh, suffice it to say that without Yahweh on their side, it did not go well for Judah at all. Uh, Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem. Zedekiah's sons were slaughtered in front of him. He's captured, blinded, brought to the uh, Babylon in chains. He's utterly humiliated because God was not on his side. And after that, Jerusalem was destroyed, including the temple, uh, which is plundered of all of its riches and glory. And chapter 25 is essentially an obituary for Jerusalem and the temple. So the, the walls are taken down, the gates are burned, uh, the temple's destroyed, the, the city is in ruins, the temple is in ruins, and all the valuable people and objects have been stripped from there and taken out of it. It's, it's a true just decimation of that region. As much as the description of the temple and all of the stuff that went into it was also very detailed, you have a similar detailed description of all the stuff that was taken out and looted and destroyed and lost. But if you, if you take a step back for a minute, um, you can really see this whole playing out of events as just this systematic unraveling of Israel as a nation. If it was, you know, this woven piece of cloth, it's like it's coming undone and just you're pulling at the thread and it's just coming apart. Um, so f first we have the tribes being split up and this the larger chunk, the Israel chunk, was kind of dispersed back in chapter 17. So there's this undoing of even just the 12 original tribes, which, remember, came from the 12 sons of Jacob slash Israel. And the reason that Israel's descendants became such a great nation is because they prospered in Egypt after reuniting as a family under Joseph's leadership. And as a united family over generations, they grew strong and numerous. And you can see leading up to the exile that that unity just is dissolving. Well, David, one thing we should mention is a lot of people often think that the first experience in Egypt was an exile, but it wasn't. It was actually a provision of God back then. Yeah, but back in Joseph's day, Egypt started off as a, it was a source of salvation, really, for Israel um, because there was a famine. And because Joseph was installed there as a leader, he was able to bring his whole family there and they were able to, you know, prosper there. But then eventually, of course, they were enslaved and oppressed by Egypt until God rescued them and brought them back home to the land that was originally promised to Abraham, Israel's grandpa. So Judah, this, this remnant of the nation, I think it's important to remember all these connections. We lose track of the, all these names. You know, Abraham was Israel's grandpa. Um, but now we have Judah, the, the last you know, remaining piece of the nation being subjugated to Egypt. And it's like just this, again, it's like a case of terrible deja vu. It's a major step backwards in their development. And then after that, the thread just keeps on pulling and they get kicked out of their land completely and into Babylon. And the interesting thing that it's 
Babylon specifically, Babylon is like this hot spot in the Bible, symbolically and literally of, of rebellion against God. Uh, remember the story of the Tower of Babylon or the Tower of Babel. That city was founded by people who wanted to rival God. And it was out of those people that God called Abraham to go to a different land and to begin the roots of a nation that would grow and prosper in, in the presence of God and then bless the whole earth. That was the original plan for Abraham and his descendants. And now they're back to Babylon. And with Solomon, you know, they were at pretty much their peak and, uh, since humanity was originally exiled from the Garden of Eden. This, the temple in Jerusalem symbolized that return to Eden and the return of God's presence to be more like it was with Adam and Eve. But then after Solomon, or as in, by the end of Solomon's reign, they were just unraveling to where now they're barely even recognizable or existent as a nation. They're all the way back to where they started, you know, figuratively and literally. And they're, you know, outside the garden banished from God's presence. Yeah. We talked about how Kings and Chronicles um, parallel each other, but each of them shows like different uh, perspective, like a different lens. As you look at the, the different historical events here and Chronicles is, has the benefit of being that hindsight book, right? So you're looking at the whole history and then you're going back and looking at all the things that took place. And we all know that when we do that, like we're doing it now, we're looking back on, on Israel's nation and saying, well, don't they see, can't they get it? Isn't this obvious to them? And, and so Chronicles is almost able to take that perspective as it goes through and bring out certain things that are obvious after the fact they may not have recognizes readily when they were living in the midst of it. Um, so uh, as is typical, um, Chronicles offers less detail, but comes with some helpful perspectives that, uh, that really uh, give us some more insight uh, through the hindsight. And toward the end of Second Chronicles, we find a retelling of a lot of the same stuff. Uh, Josiah, then Pharaoh Necho, and then and Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and Zedekiah. And we get to a little summary at the very end in chapter 36. And David, you just paste the reference up there. It tells about chapter 36, verses 15 through 21. It tells about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, but with a preceding caveat and an interesting footnote at the end. So let's, uh, let's read through that together. Second uh, Chronicles 36, 15. But Yahweh, the God of their ancestors, sent word against them by the hand of his messengers, sending them time and time again for he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept ridiculing God's messengers, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until Yahweh's wrath was so stirred up against his people that there, were no, that there was no remedy. So he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their fit young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. He had no pity on young men or young women, elderly or aged. He handed them all over to him. He took everything to Babylon. All the articles of God's temple, large and small, the treasures of Yahweh's temple, all the treasures of the king and his officials. But the Chaldeans burned God's temple. They tore down Jerusalem's wall, burned its palaces, and destroyed all its valuable articles. He deported those who escaped from the sword to Babylon, and they became servants to him and his sons until the rise of the Persian kingdom. This fulfilled the word of Yahweh through Jeremiah. 
And the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest all the days of desolation until 70 years were fulfilled. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you, you should probably bookmark this passage because in it you have a summary of Jeremiah, Elijah, Elisha, Ezra, Nehemiah. They're, they're all alluded to here, the events that, that sum up their ministries and their lives. And we'll probably refer to this passage um, uh, to provide kind of an outline for the rest of our time in the Old Testament. Um, but, but I think that this passage is super important because it helps to answer that thing that we were wrestling with earlier. You know, we talked about God was not willing to forgive them and, and that can sound really harsh and cold. Uh, but this starts out saying, um, that there was no remedy because God sent messengers over and over and over again. And it talks about God being compassionate. Um, it says in verse 15 that he sent word against them by the hand of his messengers, sending them time and time again, for he had compassion on his people and his dwelling place. It was not God's desire to, um, to, to cast this judgment on his people. It, it's not that God is a cruel, unforgiving, um, impatient God. He's rather, he's compassionate, he's merciful, and he's just. And ultimately his actions were necessary in order to fulfill the promise he made about what would happen when they turned away from him. And so this is, this is a fulfillment of prophecy, but it doesn't show the wrath of God as, as much as it shows really the compassion of God. And we have to see those two things um, working together. We can't just look at one and not the other. I think that that's a really important concept for us to grasp out of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's that's, this other thing, David, that's kind of kind of unique there. Yeah, yeah. This statement is really interesting at the end in verse 21 that says that this fulfilled the the word of Yahweh through Jeremiah, and that the land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. So how, the land enjoyed this. What on earth does does this mean? Uh, well, we it's really two statements here, I guess. So first of all. Jeremiah uh, that's mentioned here, he was one of those pre-exile messengers that's mentioned in verse 15. Uh, he, he warned about everything happening exactly the way it happened. Uh, we can see that in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11. Um, there's, this is just one little snippet. There's a lot in there, but it says, the, the whole land will become a desolate ruin, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years years. So again, you have that 70 years. So that's interesting that there's actually an, an end date that's, you know, attached to this, this event. Um, and you see that in Chronicles as well. It says it's going to last for 70 years. So there's, there's hope. There's light at the end of the tunnel. And in fact, we actually, there's a very famous verse of hope in Jeremiah, a few chapters later in chapter 29. I'll start in verse 10. Uh, for this is what Yahweh says, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and I will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. And here's the famous part, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you. This is Yahweh's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And that verse 11 gets quoted you know, out of context quite a lot. Its original intent was to provide hope specifically to the Jews during the exile. 
but there is a lot of hope offered in Jeremiah. And if you keep on reading through verse uh, chapter 25, there is, it's a beautiful, or sorry, 29. It's a beautiful message of hope. And as much as there's promise of punishment and destruction in Jeremiah, there's a promise of hope. And that shows God's character of mercy and love and of wanting to provide that hope, even for these obstinate and rebellious people. And we can just see that God's goal has always been of reconciliation and redemption, along with justice and peace, all of which can only be accomplished his way. So, so wait a minute, David, you're saying that the exile was part of God's plan for redeeming his people ultimately, but not right. just his people, but also to redeem the land? Um, yes. What does it mean that the land enjoyed it's Sabbath. Let's, I, th- I think I need you to dive into that so we can understand how even the land was exiled and, and all that. Yeah, that's such a, such a cool statement. I love this. Um, and this actually goes back all the way to Leviticus uh, and how people were supposed to take care of the land when, once they got there. Uh, and we can see that in Leviticus 25 verse 4, it says, but there will be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land in the seventh year a Sabbath to Yahweh. You are not to sow your field or prune your vineyard. So they were supposed to let the land rest every seven years, but clearly they weren't doing that because they totally disregarded Yahweh and all his guidelines. But those instructions that were given in Leviticus were provided for them to function as a society in their relationships with God, also with each other, with the surrounding nations, and with the land itself. And in the next chapter of Leviticus, if you skip over to chapter 26, we can also see how Chronicles is specifically describing the fulfillment of what God promised would happen if they failed to follow these instructions. So Leviticus 26, starting in verse 33, says, But I will scatter you among the nations. I will draw a sword to chase after you. So your land will become desolate. Check and your cities will become ruins. Check. Then the land will make up for its Sabbath years during the time it lies desolate while you are in the land of your enemies. At that time, the land will rest and make up for its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it will have the rest it did not have during your Sabbaths when you lived there. So we can see God's purposes in all of this, not, not only to bring his people to repentance, but to redeem the land itself. And I just think it's cool how the land is kind of personified here is having been trampled and punished by the evil ways of the people living there. And now it's finally getting a chance to breathe and relax and recover. It's kind of a cool image in the midst of all the, you know, tragedy and chaos. It's like the, the land is just, ah, it has a rest. I just think it's cool. So moving on, and yes, I am a Bible nerd. Um, <laughs> You're one of my favorite Bible nerds, though, David. It's, it's, uh, you know, of all the all the things that people pick up on in those passages, there's so many things that we pick up on, but the land is one that's really overlooked. And as you point out, there's so much to that, um, but it's really easy just to overlook the land part and not to even see how that that relates. So mm-hmm. thanks for bringing that out. I think that's another thing that Chronicles is specifically bringing up with hindsight saying, oh, ah, yep, he said that would happen and it happened. And there's, you know, drawing those connections to to Leviticus and Jeremiah. 
Um, so yeah, but moving on, um, if you, we're not going to read it, but if you look at the last bit of Chronicles that happens right after that, it does mention how at the end of 70 years under the Persian empire, the Jews were allowed to return as God promised. But if you, if you look at the rest of what was written then post exile, uh, we'll find that this really was only a partial a temporary fulfillment of the hope that they had. The people's hearts, for one thing, they they still are corrupt, just as corrupt as they were before they left, and their spiritual relationship with God still is broken. So the Old Testament concludes like that. It's thoroughly unresolved at the end of it. God's people are left still longing and looking forward into the future for God to send another messenger, another prophet, another king to restore his people. Of course, we know that hope is fulfilled in Jesus. But at the same time, when, it, when Jesus came, it, that didn't look quite the way the Jews were expecting or, or looking for, did it? You know, he didn't kick out the Romans. He didn't restore Jerusalem to its glory days. But what he did bring was the presence of God and a path of redemption for all of humanity, not just Israel, to return to our, our true home, one for which we, we all long, whether or not we realize it. I think that's just part of the, the human condition. In Colossians 1.13, we see a statement of what Jesus has done. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. So Jesus, he took on the consequence of sin so that God's justice could be satisfied and his mercy and his love given freely to us. But at the same time, the story is not quite over yet. And this age that we're living in, the world is still corrupted by sin. So in this way, we, we have kind of a taste of home, but we're not quite there yet. And Jesus set us on a path. He gave us a path to get there. But in the meantime, we're sojourners. We're lights surrounded by the darkness of Babylon, but called to spread that light so that as many as who receive it can be rescued from darkness and return home. And we see a lot of verses like Philippians 3.20 that says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 13.14, for we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. These are New Testament verses, New Testament writers writing with, again, that hindsight now have, having seen Christ and understanding kind of where we fit into the timeline of the universe. <laughs> and then when we get to the end uh, of the Bible in the book of Revelation, the book of revealing, we get this kind of glimpse of what homecoming will look like. And perhaps somewhat surprisingly, home, rather than us going home, it's really actually homecoming to us. Uh, and this is John speaking in Revelation. I'm going to read in chapter 21 starting in verse 10. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And it goes on with a lot more detail of how beautiful it was and all the stuff that he saw in the uh, in the city. But skipping down to verse 22, he says, I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day, but it will never be night there, or because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, but just, just getting this image of the city coming down uh, to us and then uh, skipping to the next chapter. I want to read one more little little snippet here. Uh, because this is cool. In chapter 22, starting in verse 12, this is actually Jesus speaking now. Look, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so, they, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Again, there's a lot in there, but just want to point out that by these words, Jesus is revealing himself in no uncertain terms to be that ultimate fulfillment of God's covenant to David. And when Jesus comes again, it will be to fully bring us home, or again, more accurately, bring home to us. But even as we look forward to that day, we also must live in the present. So what do we do in the meantime? Looking at Jesus when he did come the first time, temporarily it was the way he showed up was kind of inglorious by human standards. It wasn't what they were expecting. He didn't bring back the wealth of Solomon. He did not bring back the conquests of David. He didn't bring the cosmic ferocity of Moses. In that way, he didn't look like a king or a prophet or the priest that the Jews were looking for. But what's interesting is he did actually look a lot like some of the people living in exile in Babylon. And during their time in exile, which was kind of a unique time, the Jews were actually told to, to prosper and to seek the prosperity of their captors. And at the same moment, or at the same time, they had moments when they had to be subversive and even defiant in order to follow God because of where they were. And Jesus displayed the same tension. You know, he wasn't this political revolutionary, but he did at times you know, nonviolently um, oppose 
both the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders, and he called out corruption and idolatry, a lot like the prophets did in the Old Testament. And Lord willing, again, we'll be able to explore some more of you know, that dynamic in the coming weeks. And as we look at some of the specific situations the Jews were in, where they had to navigate this kind of paradox of this responsibility they had to each other, but also their human authorities and to God, and looking at all those people, along with how Jesus handled that and his disciples, then I think we can get some, some wisdom for how to live away from home in this time. Yeah, and this time for Israel is really a, a very significant time, as you brought out in the beginning, David. And, and it's, it's this huge transition for us going from Solomon, who looked like he could be the fulfillment of the promise and then was not. Um, and now all of a sudden they went from being at the, this kind of mountaintop experience to sinking lower than they have, uh, as a nation ever before and, and not even being a nation. I mean, this, this is like taking them back to pre Abraham and, but it's a reminder for us too, that, um, that the world is broken and that it's not about a select people. It's about a select person. It's about the Messiah and about Christ. And we're going to see that as we look through this, uh, exile, season in Israel. And we're going to, we think, Lord willing, we're going to look at uh, some of the exile events that took place, but then also uh, give you some insights into the the messengers that were referred to um, from the pre-exile, as well as the hope that they give um, in the post-exile, or um, because there's, there's a lot that's leading up and it's pointing to in that area to what takes place in the gospels. And so this is a section we want to focus on without, without spending five years in is going to be the challenge. There's just so much there. Um, so, so we know we can't cover all that and just trying to cover this idea of the exile um, and give you an overview of it. in one message is a lot to do. Uh, but for today, I think some of the big takeaways that we need to look at is, is how we see God portrayed in the exile. Um, on the surface and without much context, one might believe that God is just a cruel punisher of those that disobey him, but the exile uh, does not really portray God that way. Instead, we see God as, first of all, being just. Um, he's one who keeps his promises, both to bless and to punish. And, and really, I mean, think about this. Would you want a God that was not this way? I mean, do you would you want a God that would just change his mind or not, uh, not follow through on his word. And God is very clear of going back and forth on the, here's your blessings and here's your curses to the whole uh, promise of the nation. Yeah, David, what did you want to jump in on? Um, well, it just made me think, I'm not a parent, but I've heard it from parents or people speaking to parents um, when dealing with their children, the importance of following through um, and I'm sure that's something you, you've had experience with, where if you say that something's going to happen, if you say there's going to be a consequence for something, you need to follow through on that. Um, even if you, know, you give them a second chance, a third chance, eventually at some point, <laughs> if they refuse to listen, you have to follow through or you know, nothing's going to change. So I think we see kind of that type of parenting <laughs> from God. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so his justice is a really important concept. And we, as we think about the justice of God, I think often we think of justice in wanting, kind of like David's prayers, wanting God to enact justice on our behalf. 
but we have to realize that there's a greater justice and that's God's justice that can be enacted uh, both for blessing and for punishment. Um, however, going back to our wisdom literature, there's no formula like Proverbs seems to allude to that if you live a certain way, you'll always get the blessing of God. And if you live a different way, you'll only, you know, you'll only get punishment from God. So, so realize that taking this idea of justice, uh, we also have to take it in light of the wisdom literature. I think that's an important concept to wrap our, our brains around. I think the second thing we can take away from this about God's character is his compassion. Um, and, and this is, this is just huge. You know, God is merciful and he is compassionate and he provides opportunity after to, opportunity for people to trust him and to obey him. And, and though we have verses that we like to quote about God is not slow concerning his promises as most men count slowness, but he's patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. I mean, we, we want to quote verses like that for us, but he was that way and has been that way ever since the very beginning. He didn't, wipe out Adam and Eve. He clothed them and forgave them and continued to nurture them. And he didn't wipe out the Israelites completely. He, he had compassion on them, even though they rejected him over and over again. And he, and he did wait until they rejected him over and over and over again. So I think that we see that compassion a lot. Yeah. You mentioned Adam and Eve and I'll have to come back to this some other time, but sometime remind me to explain how God kicking them out of the garden was actually an act of mercy because if they stayed in the garden, they would have had access to the tree of life and it would have, you know, been horrible life for them to live forever in that way. So really their exile was also an act of compassion and not just punishment. Yeah, that's a, that's a fun whole other sermon. Uh, Yeah. Some other time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think one of the third things that I noticed about the character of God in this is God is very uh, giving. He, he makes provisions to reconcile um, all of those things at his own expense. He uses this time of exile to show our need for him to reverse the curse and free us from the power of sin. And even though he's showing us our own brokenness through the through the exile, through the kings that, that abandoned him, through going all the way back to, to Noah and the people of his day. And over and over again, he shows us um, our brokenness and our need for being saved from our own selves. Um, he then still has this promise of the Messiah. He's going to give his only son to redeem us from exile. And, and it's, to think of God as being just, he has the right to do what he needs to, to punish us. But this giving and compassion, the, the compassion leads to a, a level of giving that's just really beyond comprehension because he doesn't give us what we deserve, but what is truly best for us, um, which is forgiveness and redemption through Jesus Christ, if we'll just accept him. Yeah. At his so those own, are some of the, what's that? Go ahead, David. Yeah, it was just, at his own expense, he, you know, goes out of his way to reconcile, makes, make, he can't, you know, he has to be just, but he wants to show compassion. So he does what it takes because we can't in order to reconcile the two. So, yeah. So the Parker's put in a Bible nerd moment there in the chat. You can check yeah. out as well. So. Yeah, that's cool. Bringing out, uh, Jacob's ladder and kind of the parallels to that dream and the vision of Jerusalem, uh, the new Jerusalem descending from heaven 
and the, how God was at the top of the ladder or the stairs and said that he would bring him back to that land. Yeah, that's cool. Hadn't thought of that. There's, I, I'm, I'm really um, consider myself blessed to be in a church family full of Bible nerds. Um, it's really <laughs> an awesome thing. And hopefully as we study, you know, we can so many times I think we approach the Old Testament and, and even this uh, this period of exile. I would say that many of us study Genesis and those stories um, because we, we like the Genesis narrative. Um, we like the, the stories of the Exodus. Some of the stories from exile come out in Sunday school classes, you know, uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. But I would say that most people that I know do not study the exile. Um, they haven't read through the pro- those prophets and really studied out what took place there. And, and yet, what's that? Some of it's really heavy stuff. It is. It can be very depressing too. But yet, as we study God's word, it should be reminding us of, of his character and of his nature. And of if we're going to be his image bearers, then how do we need to live? Um, and if we were just to think about those three, those three things that are mentioned uh, about the character of God being just, being compassionate, and giving, um, uh, Micah was one of the last. Um, Micah is one of the, the prophets during this this exile season, and Micah says, "He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God." And so you see this justice and this compassion. Um, in, in those verses. And we should be reflecting the same type of justice. Um, we should be reflecting also not to kind of justice that just everybody gets what they deserve, which we see in our society so much right now. Uh, we're seeing it with rioting. We're seeing it with all sorts of things where people want to take justice into their own hands. We also have to have compassion um, and, and, and show the same kind of mercy that God shows us. And then we also have to be willing to give sacrificially the way God gives. And so being his image bearers means reflecting these in our relationships at work and at home and in our society. And it seems like um, those are not traits that are uh, readily found on social media and, and in places where we're catching all of our news. We're not reading about those kinds of things, I don't think. 